uh, Numbers 15. Be Numbers 15 in just a moment. Uh, as you're turning to Numbers 15, uh, let me say the other day when we were going home, uh, Christy asked me, she says, uh, why didn't you agree with Phil's comment? And I says, I did agree. And she said, well, you said you didn't. Um, so I'll take her word for it because I know one time before she told me, she says, I didn't know you believed such and such. She said, I don't. This was 20 years ago. And she said, well, you said it in a sermon. I said, I saw it. And uh, that night, somebody at church asked me the same thing. <laughs> so I went to the tape and... Um, I didn't believe it, but I sure enough said it. So, so I apologize for that, you know, and, and I'm sorry, Phil, if your self-esteem yes. has been low, but, but, you know, so we'll try to build it back up. But Numbers 15 is more law after we have seen narrative from verse historical narrative in Numbers 11 through 14. And yet the law is no doubt carefully placed where it is for a purpose. Notice in verses 1 and 2, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving to you, the land which I am giving to you. Now, you know what went on in Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13 and 14, the 12 spies are sent to search out the land of Canaan. Ten of them come back with a report and said, we can't take the land. The cities are fortified to the heavens and the people that dwell therein are strong. And God said, because these spies caused mass unbelief among the people, that this generation will die in the wilderness. But your children that you said would become a prey, they will take the land. They will know the land, uh, the text says in Numbers 14 in verse 31. The people were then defeated in a crushing way when they went up to fight in chapter 14 verses 39 through 45 and they may have been overwhelmed with discouragement. These very laws call attention to the fact that God's promises are still valid. That God is still going to give them the land. Sure, it's not going to be that generation, but their descendants will receive that land. You see that not only in verse 2, but in verse 18. You see the same thing. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you. And also, not only do these emphasize God's promise of giving the people the land, but in a roundabout way, they emphasize that the land was a good land. That the land was flowing with milk and honey. Because it's going to be a land where you're going to be able to offer grain offerings and offer drink offerings uh, and offer uh, the animals the Lord has given you. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. So these laws placed at this point are assurances that the people will be given the land. And they serve a very important function from that perspective. 
So many of these sections in the book of Numbers began as verse 1 does, emphasizing that the Lord spoke to Moses and then he turns around and speaks to the sons of Israel. What is stressed in these first 16 verses are instructions about burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, in verse 3, it says, Make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering uh, or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to the Lord. Okay? Right here, he mentions a burnt offering. He does not mention a peace offering specifically though, does he? He says a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow. However, votive or sacrifices relating to vows, or notice also verse 3 mentions a free will offering, both of those are various kinds of peace offerings. You find that out in Leviticus 7 in verse 16. Leviticus 7 and verse 16, which by the way is part uh, of our daily reading today. Leviticus 7 verse 16. So it's a burnt offering and a peace offering that is a votive offering or is uh, a, uh, a free will offering. Now, what you'll find here in verses 3 through 5... He mentions an offering of a lamb. That's not clear till we get to verse 5. That the lamb is the animal that's offered. But uh, for each lamb, they're to offer. And then verses 6 and 7 deal with the ram that was offered. A ram that was offered in these circumstances. And verses 8 through 10... The bull. Now, with each of these offerings, there was an accompanying grain offering and drink offering. Leviticus has talked about the grain offering. Leviticus did not talk about the drink offering. The drink offering was alluded to one time previously in Numbers. It was alluded to in Numbers 6 and verse 15. And that was after the Nazarites' time for keeping a vow is completed. It says he is to offer a grain offering and a drink offering. That's Numbers 6 and verse 15. But this is the first time that we see the average person offering a grain offering, or offering a drink offering, excuse me. Now, I want to read a little bit of this, and partly I'm going to be commenting, partly I'm reading, but uh, tell me if you pick up on something. When they offer a lamb, verse 4 says that they are to offer this with a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, and verse 5 with a fourth of a hen of wine. In verse 6, when they offer a ram, they offer two tenths of an ephah of fine flour and one-third of a hen of oil. And a drink offering, they offer a third of a hen of wine. 
in verses 8 through 10, as he talks about the bull, he talks about that you offer as a bull a grain offering, you offer three tenths of flour, a fine flour mixed with one half of a hen of oil. And then in verse 10, you shall offer a one half a hen of wine as an offering. Did you pick up on anything there? Now I recognize uh, this may not be the most familiar text to you, but did you pick up on anything there or in your reading? Okay. It, 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 it begins to double and even triple. Uh, what's in, in you do that also? The the drink offering gets bigger, doesn't it? This is the way. I, and and your Don is on the right idea that I would say as the animal gets bigger, the grain and drink offering get bigger. You know, the, the animal that they're offering gets larger, and so therefore the corresponding grain offering and drink offering get larger as well. Now, one passage, and you can write this down, um, where you see a reference to um, an offering of an animal and a grain offering uh, is First Samuel 1 verse 24. 1 Samuel 1 verse 24. This is when Hannah is going up to the tabernacle to dedicate Samuel to the Lord. 1 Samuel 1 24. When she had weaned him, she took him up, he, she took uh, him up with her with a three year old bull, one ephah of flour, and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. So you see the bull offered, then you see also the grain offering made, and then you see the drink offering, just like you see in this particular passage. Now, one of the expressions that you see quite frequently through this section is the idea of this being a soothing aroma to the Lord. A soothing aroma to the Lord. That idea was found, uh, it's not only found with the um, meat offerings, but it's used with the drink offerings as well. Uh, It's used in verse 3. It's used in verse 7. Uh, it is used in verse 10. It's used in verse 13 and verse 14. Now, several people ask about that, or a couple of people ask about that the other day, and uh, I don't like to try to dominate our daily reading page. I want to try to help and comment, but I don't want to um, control everything. But this... What would you say that means? You see that phrase just used a lot of times uh, in Leviticus. It's used in these verses of different types of offering. Uh, But what what do you think the idea is? Do you remember the first time that that's used in the Bible? Noah. Noah, when he got off the ark in Genesis 8.21. It's used there. But how would you define it? Isn't it also used as like 
prayers of the saints are... They are described as incense in Revelation 5, 8. And there's a passage in Psalm 141, verse 2 that does the same kind of thing. I think it's a it's a very anthropomorphic expression. And what that means describes God in human terms. Were you want to say something, Mary? Um, just the, the fact that he's pleased with it. Yeah, I think it's just it's a really it's a really dramatic term, anthropomorphic or describing God in terms we can relate to, to say God is pleased with it. And the offering of these sacrifices changes God's attitude toward the sinner who comes in humility, who comes broken before Him, and who offers these sacrifices. They made a real difference in the worshiper's relationship with God. And of course, these passages about the soothing aroma uh, also in Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2. The sacrifice of Christ is described in this same way. So this is just another point at which all these Old Testament animal sacrifices ultimately point to, ultimately foreshadow Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. Now, I want to tell you something else that's striking to me in this particular chapter. And we see it first here in verse 13. But it says, All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. In an alien, if an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. What verses 13 through 16 state is the law that's given here in verses 1 through 16 applies to the native Israelite. That's no surprise. But it it applies also to the alien living among Israel. Now isn't it interesting that aliens living among them might bring sacrifices to God. Now I find that in itself interesting. Let me make a slight tangent. And I don't mean to make this the main point of discussion. But I'll tell you one way this helps me. And I may be throwing something out that you haven't been exposed to that much. I do understand why teachers and preachers used to emphasize this. But I can remember sometimes hearing growing up, John 9.31 quoted that God doesn't hear the unbeliever's prayer. The reason they were arguing that is because they didn't want a mourner's bench idea of salvation where you see a person goes up and prays through to be saved or even as we say in modern times to pray the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer is is not in the scripture. You know, I've sometimes talked to people that were pretty skilled denominational people in the scripture and you ask them where is that and it kind of stuns them. When they realize it's not in there. I understand what they're guarding against. But I wouldn't go to the point to say 
God never hears a prayer depends on what they're praying for, what they're asking for. No, they weren't told to repent and pray to be forgiven. They were told to repent and baptize. But at the same time, God sometimes... God heard the prayers of the people of Nineveh, didn't He? When they cried out to God, asking to be delivered. And I think God heard the prayers of Cornelius in Acts 10 and sent someone to teach him. But I don't want to get off on that point. But as far as the text itself, do you have a question? Do you have an idea? So with the soothing aroma to the Lord, is it like soothing God's anger, kind of? Uh, or am I... Well, His anger over the sin of the worshiper who's bringing the offering, kind of. I, I think we would have to probably, Sarah, put the whole Bible together and to, to piece that out of it. I'm not saying that what you're saying, because God is angry with the sinner every day. I think what you're saying is true, whether it would be in this phrase just in itself. I think the idea mainly just in itself is that God is pleased with it. You know, but I think in the overall picture of Scripture as a whole, yes. I said, I, do, I, I, I think what you're saying is correct. Whether it's just contained in that phrase, I, yeah, I don't know. Did you have a thought, Ryan? Yeah, is this also like uh, picturing like the idyllic uh, promised land where they have the fruit of the land flowing of milk and honey, the, the fruit of the vine? To, they have all of this yeah, abundance. Yeah, yeah remember... Relationship with God, right? Yes, exactly. Remember, they bring back that cluster of grapes... Numbers 13, verse 23. It's so big they've got to carry it on this pole. And they say the land is flowing with milk and honey. Originally, they say that. The fact that they that drink offerings are just mentioned here for the average Israelite may only emphasize, yes, this is a good land. This is a land where you're going to have plenty of grain to offer and plenty of wine to offer in addition to these sacrifices that God's going to give you. But yes, this is a statement, not only that God will give them the land, but that the land to some degree is a good land. Yes. In verses 17 through 21, the first fruits of their dough belong to the Lord. Now I may ask one of you to read it while I sit here and write a lot of these verses on the board. Uh, Who wants to read? So, Sarah, go ahead. 17 to 21. Yes. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough you shall lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. Okay, very good, very good. Now, the passages that I'm writing up, they don't all deal with the dough like this passage does. But these are all passages that speak of the firstborn and speak of Israel offering them up. Now, I'm running out of room when I'm just on the book of Exodus. We could get a few more things in the book of Leviticus. A verse that doesn't mention first fruits by name, but it's the same idea, is when they came into a land in Leviticus 19, and they had a fruit tree, 
they were not to eat of the fruit the first few years, and then the, the first year they could eat of it, they devoted all to the Lord. And then they can eat fr- freely from it. So, what you see in these passages is the same kind of thing in relation to eating the fruit of the land. The Lord spoke to Moses. Moses speaks to Israel. When you enter the land where I bring you God's promise of the land, again stressed there in verse 18, and when you eat of the land, you'll lift up an offering to the Lord. Some of your versions, I think, have that it's a heave offering. Um, Yours says that Mary and a heave offering is the term that's used, which may just refer to some motion to, to dedicate it. But the first of your dough, you lift up this cake to the Lord. What would be the point in the fact they offer the firstborn of their livestock, the firstborn of their own children, which the Levites take the place of, as we know, the first four, first uh, fruits of their barley harvest and of their wheat harvest, and here uh, of the the cakes they make. What would be? What's the point of all of that? Yeah, God is the source of all of it. And if you're offering the first produce from the land or from the herd or whatever to God, it is a constant reminder that God is the source of all of our blessings. Victoria? And also, like, that would be putting more trust in Him that He's going to uh, provide more after that, too. That it's not, yes. okay, well, let me make sure I get more before I give you. Yes. You're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It takes a lot of trust to, uh, to give the first part to God, believing He's still going to provide. You know, some had made that point, too, that when they come into the land, this is, and this was spurred on by the way you said it there, Victoria, something, um, that, that when they first come to the land, probably the best city, the most attractive city, to an outsider would have been Jericho. First city they take. And what do they do to Jericho? They burn it totally. Now if you look closely at at the book of Joshua, it's not every city they burn to the ground. There's only a few mentioned, I think three specifically, that mentions and says that they burn them to the ground. But it took a lot of faith as Victoria states, that God's going to give them the whole thing. And therefore, you give this to God. Listen to this verse, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Sometimes the first represented the best. And sometimes the first uh, simply was a way to remind yourself, as Katrina said, that everything we have is from Him. Now, later in Jewish households, when the temple was destroyed and they could not go to the temple, uh, it is said that, that they took some of the grain that they have and simply throw it in the fire as 
a reminder that this is God's, this is not ours, and that God is the one who is the source of every blessing. And the Bible says, one of the places, this, this phrase I'm about to use is from Ezekiel 44, as Ezekiel pictures an ideal temple. And in Ezekiel 44, verse 30, he talks of the people um, bringing their sacrifice like this and says their houses will be blessed as a result of these offerings. Sarah? I've always thought with the first fruits idea, Abel's sacrifice was such an act of faith because he didn't necessarily know how this whole animal thing worked. I mean, the whole thing was new to all of them. The firstlings of their flock and their fat portions. Later in the law, those are the specific portions that God asked for. I think the idea, sometimes we say uh, Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain offered uh, a grain sacrifice. And God may have revealed more to them about what he wanted than is recorded. I think, though, the safer ground to go to, because we do see grain offerings in the Old Testament that had God's approval and that are also described, Leviticus 2.2 and Leviticus 2 verse 9, as a sweet savor to God. So you could offer grain offerings all throughout the Old Testament. I think the idea is that Abel gives his best to God. And Cain gives the fruit of the ground, an ordinary offering. If we can see the difference from what we're told, I think that's it. Now, what we see... In verses 22 through uh, 20, 31, are sacrifices that were offered for sins they didn't know about. Now, again, we've already seen the phrase soothing aroma, as we were talking about extensively. And the idea is that these sacrifices, it's understood they're offered in humility, do impact their relationship with God. But it's something interesting about these sacrifices. I want you to uh, read with me here in verse 22. When you unwittingly fail and do not observe all the commandments, all of these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations. Then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering, its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven... For it was an error, and they have brought an offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them. For it happened to all the people through error. 
Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for a person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him. He may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is the native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among you. But the person who acts defiantly, when he, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. Now, when he is describing the kind of sins that will be forgiven, how does he describe those sins? The sins that are forgiven by these sacrifices, what does, how does he describe them? Unwittingly fail to do Okay, you unwittingly fail in verse 22. And uh, I think that phrase is used one other time lately, uh, later. But there's another phrase for this too. It's not the same word in Hebrew. What does he say? Unintentionally. Unintentionally. Now, it has the same idea to us, but these are different words that are used. And he uses the term unintentionally in verse 24, verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29. So he uses that term four times. He specifies in verse 24 that this sin that is unintentional is without the knowledge of the congregation. So this is unwittingly, this is unintentionally, this is without the knowledge of the congregation. So the congregation has sin in this particular respect. Now, what does that mean that you sin unintentionally or unwittingly? Well, look at the word in verse 24 particularly that was used, unintentionally. Unintentionally. This word, one of the places where you find this word used a couple of times, it's used several times in this context, but it is in Numbers 35, verse 11, and Numbers 35, verse 15. Then in Joshua 20, and verse, uh, Joshua 20, verse 3, and Joshua 20, verse 9. Now, our goal by the end of the class is when somebody calls off Numbers 35, you know what's going on there. But we haven't gotten to Numbers 35 yet. Numbers 35 is dealing with cities of refuge. So is Joshua 20. Now, who could find shelter in a city of refuge? Those who killed another in this fashion. Those are the ones who could find refuge. If you didn't kill this way, you didn't find refuge in the city. Now what's an example of that? Deuteronomy 19 will give an example. Uh, is two people are in the wood, woods cutting trees. 
They're friends, apparently. They're working together. The axe head flies off of one uh, axe and hits the other man in the head and kills him. Now, if that happens to you four or five times in a life, <laughs> you know, people might get suspicious. But, but, but that is a t- case you didn't intend to do it intentionally. And you could find refuge in the city of refuge. So, does that help us a little bit to grasp what may be going on here of the unintentional sin. And what happens is when this happens, you offer a bull for a burnt offering, verse 24. You offer a, um, you offer a male goat for a sin offering, and then you offer the corresponding a grain offering and drink offering for that burnt offering. And twice it is said in this text, in verse 25 and in verse 26, they shall be forgiven. They shall be forgiven. Now again, if these people are broken about their relationship with God, as we suggested they may have been in Numbers 13 and 14, as God rebuked them strongly for their sin, God is emphasizing that there is a means of forgiveness. That if you offer the proper sacrifices, it's not just steps to walk through, but you give your heart to God, then you can be Forgiven, and the priest can make an atonement. But this is not, there's a different law. This is said in 22 through 29. There's a different instruction given for the one who sins with um, defiantly, the text says. Now, the text. It literally says in a high-handed, high-handed way. He sins with a high hand. Now, this word is used twice in the Old Testament to talk about how Israel left the land of Egypt. They left the land of Egypt uh, boldly uh, in Exodus 14, verse 8. It's Exodus 14, verse 8, and in Numbers 33, verse 3. Israel's leaving the land boldly, defiantly, is is the same word used there, same two words used together there that are used here to talk about the people's sin. They're sinning boldly, defiantly. Openly. The Bible says, in doing that, in verse 30, you are blaspheming the Lord. You're blaspheming the Lord. And this word for blaspheme is used seven times in the Old Testament. And four of those references refer to how the king of Assyria was mocking Hezekiah and mocking Hezekiah's God in 2 Kings 19 and the corresponding passage in Isaiah 37. The person who sins boldly or defiantly is blaspheming the Lord and he has, the text says, um, 
he's, he's blaspheming the Lord and he will be cut off from among the people. Now verse uh, 31 is going to use a stronger phrase. It's going to be using the two forms of that word back to back. He will be completely cut off. But it's like saying he'll be cut off, cut off twice in a row in verse 31. And notice what he says in verse 31. The person who sins in this fashion is blaspheming the Lord. He has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. He has despised the word of the Lord. Let me read to you a passage. You tell me what I'm referring to, what I'm reading here. Why have you... You're not going to have any trouble with this, by the way. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now you know who who that's talking to. It's talking to David at 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10. David is said to have despised the word of the Lord and to have despised the Lord. Just like this passage warns against. What would have been the appropriate penalty for David's sin? And yet, God in His mercy doesn't take His life. David may have wished at the end of the day that he had. But God is mercy, merciful in not enforcing fully, completely this penalty. Now, I don't know how this always worked out and what sins were defiant or high-handed, though I think we may get an idea to the text. But I want you to I want you to look at another, a passage differently because of this. When Jesus prayed, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." And then Peter preaches in Acts three seventeen, "I know that you did this ignorantly." He may be holding out to them. Peter may be, and when we say somebody's ignorant, we often use it as an insult. Peter may be handing out God's mercy that this this sacrifice that Jesus offered can bring you forgiveness, can bring you cleansing if you humble yourself before Him and accept that sacrifice. Katrina, you had a thought. Well, I was just thinking about David because um, at the end of in, end of thirty one it says uh, his iniquity shall be on him. Um, I just wonder if the reason that David wasn't cut off was because he was repentant. Well, he was repentant, and um, but I, I think I think Achan was too, you know, in Joshua seven. I'm, I don't know if that was the sole factor, but I do think it indicates. 
I don't think we should ever look at it that God doesn't keep His Word, but that God's mercy is so great, sometimes He may not enforce the full penalty. So he was repentant. Psalm 51 shows that, Katrina. Uh, if that is the main answer, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I just didn't know since he was talking about being, whoever this is, being so high-handed or mm-hmm. um, that he was, he never repented, that he was just yeah so arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it could tie. It, it may be tied there. But don't we always, I've heard of people who emphasize distinctions in in sin. Don't we recognize that too? And isn't there a difference between somebody, um, I'll use myself as an illustration, in high school one morning, I didn't drive too much, particularly to school, and I'm driving down the wrong way of a one-way street and uh, the police officer pulled me over and says how long have you lived here I said all my life <laughs> and uh, he said and you didn't know this was one-way street I said no sir I said I didn't and I won't tell you he was about to slap me this is one time this is him he was about to slap me with a ticket and uh, the um, a policeman I knew that was a Christian said he was the most ticket given policeman they had but he threw in this question he says do you have a job and I said yes sir and he says what do you do and I said I preach he said said, well he said I'm not going to give you a ticket this time totally changed so he said I'm just going to give you a warning you deserve it for what you did but I know you're trying to be respectful so I'll let you off but my point is do we but we if somebody is telling us they really didn't know. If our children didn't recognize something they shouldn't do, that's different than them looking at us and defiantly doing it anyway, isn't it? And God recognizes those same differences within us. That doesn't mean that any sin is not serious, and that's where I think we sometimes might worry about this. But... All sin is serious, but certainly Paul received mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I think that's 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. If it's not 13, it's 13 through 15. I think that's the passage. But the next story may be intended to illustrate what a high-handed or defiant sin is. And it says in verse 32, While the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what would be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord commanded. Now, this section has really striking similarities to Leviticus 24. In Leviticus 24, 10 through 16, remember there was a man who took God's name in vain in a fight in the camp. 
And they put him in custody to see what the Lord said to do with him. And then they stoned him to death. Like in this passage. Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16. Let me give you a couple of other passages. The Sabbath, violation of the Sabbath, was a capital crime that has been revealed before in Exodus 31, verse 15, in Exodus 35, verses 2 and 3. In Exodus 35, 2 and 3, when it tells us that death is the penalty for violating the Sabbath, it particularly warned against kindling a fire on the Sabbath. So, not only has the Sabbath been commanded, but they were told the penalty for violation. We don't know anything about this man nor this event except what we see right here. But I think contextually, in the book of Numbers, that we're to see this man as a high-handed, defiant sinner who knows God's will and who disregards it and as a result is stoned because of it. Now I want to make sure to finish this section of this chapter. Moses also spoke, the Lord also spoke to Moses, verse 37, 38, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And you shall put on the tassels of each cord, each corner, a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. In order that you may remember to do all the commandments of the Lord, to be holy to your God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So they make tassels on their garments. So these tassels mentioned also in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 12. Make tassels on your garments. And it says that they are of a blue cord. Where have we seen the color blue mentioned in the book of Numbers before? That's a simple question. <laughs> That'd be a good test question. Where's the Okay, in the tabernacle. Remember that covered the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, and those items in Numbers four, beginning around verses six and seven. Do you? If you want me to send the notes afterwards, I can. If you will want more of these things, I don't want to wear you out with four pages of notes if you don't want them. But if you want them, you got them. Uh, but anyway. Uh, the blue cord was mentioned in several of these places. It was also mentioned in connection with the curtains of the tabernacle. So, blue has been a royal color and a godly color. Uh, color represents His presence throughout the book. And they are to do it to remember His commandments. Now, this word tassels... The word that's used in the Septuagint is used five times in the New Testament. In Matthew 9, verse 20. In Matthew 14, 36. In Matthew 23, verse 5. 
three of those times in Matthew. We're using Mark 6, 56, 6, 56, and Luke 8, verse 44. Okay? Now what's the significance of these passages? Two of these passages show the woman with a hemorrhage of blood, 12 years, who thinks, if I can just touch the tassel of his garment. It's the same word from the Greek translation, Septuagint in Numbers 15, as it's used there. If I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. That's Matthew 9, 20 and Luke 8, verse 44. Two of the other passages deal with the crowds saying the same thing. In Matthew 14, 36, and in Matthew, in Mark 6, 56, the crowds are saying, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. The other passage deals with the Pharisees. The Pharisees who broadened their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. The tassels of the garments can bring healing and life from Jesus. And the Pharisees did it to call attention to themselves. What does the Bible say was the purpose of this? The purpose was to remember all God's commandments in verse 39. They did it as a show uh, of themselves to make themselves look important. Can we ever take something God's commanded and twist it to forget Him and to promote ourselves? It was a serious crime when they did it. But yes, unfortunately, we can. And so the Bible tells us here that the purpose is to remember God's commandments and to do them. You know Deuteronomy 29, 29. You've heard this part of verse. Secret things belong to God. You've heard that quoted a lot. The rest of the verse says, but the things He has revealed belong to us and our children so that we might do them. Wear the tassels on their garments to remember God's commandments and to do what He said. In contrast to this man stone for gathering sticks, they want to do God's commandments. God bless. Would you want those notes from that? Okay. You know, the rest of you may get stuck with it because a couple answered enthusiastically, okay? I know I've made it big time when they're being sold for a high price on eBay.